1: Talk Radio.
2: Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brudico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. This podcast is designed to give the Academy's outlook on the uh, economic, political, and ecological factors that affect our listeners. Our guest today is Deb Nelson, Executive Director of Social Venture Network, an organization of 600 business leaders, impact investors, and social entrepreneurs who are leveraging the power of business to solve social and environmental problems. Deb is here to discuss a trend in in investing that could be the most important and underreported story in global affairs today the enormous stranded asset bubble that could annihilate the fossil fuel industry when investors realize what they're looking at. In the lightning round, we will discuss ways to protect your investments, including our outlook for inflation and energy prices. Uh, But first, Ronaldo, let's talk about what you're seeing in domestic and global current affairs, uh, starting with the domestic economic outlook.
0: Thanks, Matt, and thanks uh, for joining us, Deb. I can't wait to get to your interview. Um, clearly some of the the big news is that we've just passed in march uh... all the jobs have been regained in the private sector that we lost since the last recession that's an amazing statement hundred ninety two thousand jobs this 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 month uh, March, march reported increased uh, the public sector, of course, continues to remain behind where it was before the, uh, the last great deep recession. So although the private sector is doing an incredible job, as it has for quite some time now, the public sector still isn't uh, holding their own. And why that's particularly tragic is that the private sector is rebuilding, even though it has inadequate tools. There needs to be more public spending on infrastructure. I don't know that people can ignore uh, when climate change is wreaking such havoc again in the southeastern part of the United States, for example, a polar vortex earlier in the year for the rest of the country. And unfortunately, I'm sure, uh, besides drought, California is about to get its own share of fires again. So we desperately need infrastructure of all sorts, particularly transportation and energy infrastructure. And um, with those dollars released to create that, which the, the Congress has been blocking, I believe that the, the economy would really soar. Having said that, we're going to reaffirm our estimate from January of a, a GDP gain for this year of around a 27 to 3%. Uh, we continue to predict that you're going to see that uptick in, in is going to build strength by, through the second quarter, which we're in now up through the third quarter. And we're looking for a much better retail year at the end of the year than we had last year for Christmas. Um, I'm really excited that um, if we were to create good jobs, not just increases of jobs, meaning uh, getting outside the service sector and into things like more home construction, which was built into these numbers, by the way. Uh, But uh, the amount of construction jobs that we need just to repair our roads and bridges uh, would be a substantial stimulus to the economy and therefore would give uh, the opportunity for the middle class to begin to come back. Um, I I say that as a segue to um, the fact that in 2014, we're beginning to see the growth in real wages now. Real wages means the money that you make over and above inflation. And when the middle class starts to experience a growth in real wages, now that's different from thinking your house went up in value. Real wages is actually what's in your paycheck. Um, that leads to stimulative spending. We expected that to happen this year. It is happening. That's great. Uh, labor market is tightening. I know in the um, several um, of the hardest hit metropolitan areas, for example, Los Angeles. Uh, the Los Angeles-Orange County area uh, re- released a significant increase in job openings. It's well over 100,000 currently. So um, this, this, this means that the market's tightening and as the labor market tightens I think you'll see some continued growth in real wages and that's a really good thing for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is it's morally reprehensible to have created the income divide we have in this country and it's bad for the economy. State municipal governments, by the way, are using public-private partnerships to build infrastructure because they can't get um, funds from Congress. Uh, that's unfortunate in some ways. Uh, the example that you're most commonly experiencing out there on the roadways is toll roads. Increasingly, the free highway system, which was uh, Eisenhower's gift to the country, a National Interstate Highway System, is increasingly being compromised by private toll roads. Um, that's the way of the future. I guess if you look back to the founding of the nation in the 1700s, most of the maintained long-distance roads were toll roads. So in one sense, we're going back um, back into the past. Uh, I think it's regrettable, but it's unavoidable. And given the, um, the continuing... Um, uh, Locked horns—that's going on with the Republican majority in the House over so many key issues right now, including infrastructure spending. I don't really see that the cities and states will have any choice but to be creative and to bring in the private sector, which unfortunately means the public will pay more and it'll be less available to the middle and lower class. So I'm really sad about that. Uh, I want to point out the, the the X factor continues to be, however, climate change. It's going to accelerate. It's going to get worse. It's going to be more frequent. It's, the storms are going to be bigger. And we don't really know yet the full implications of what that will do to the GDP in 2014. However, my suspicion and what's baked into my 2.75 to 3 number, and you'll recall, folks, I, I had a 3, I, it was a quarter percent higher in November, and I reduced it by a quarter percent because of polar vortex. And when I did that, I was one of the only economists that was saying that. Now I think it's a commonly accepted opinion that we lost at least a quarter percent of GDP growth as a result of the polar vortex. Um, So I can't bake into my projection of 275 to 3% GDP growth, which is a really nice uptick given the uh, trauma going on in Washington, D.C. However... I can't say for certainty that will happen because the effect of climate change could come out of the clear blue and hit us in all kinds of ways that would be difficult. Let me give you an example. Um, the refineries on the Gulf Coast are making money hand over fist because polar vortex caused so much distillate to be made for home heating oil that we were, um, they weren't able to make as much gas, and therefore they were able to keep the price of gasoline in the United States up higher than it should be because they didn't have the refining capacity put into it. Well, if one of the 27 refineries on the Gulf Coast gets hit by another storm like Ike or any of the major Gulf storms, uh, that could cause the same problem. And all of a sudden you can see fuel bills continuing to rise, and fuel bills are one of the biggest factors of reducing the average disposable income of the average American. So uh, I, I say the X factor is weather, but I baked some of that into my com- calculation, and I do still come out with about uh, a 275 to 3% growth, which means we're gonna have, you're going to experience that as about a 25% lift over last year. And that's a lot. That's, that's, that's a nice chunk of change, and I think you're going to see consumers coming back to the market in a stronger way in that third quarter. I can't end, however, uh, without looking at the international implications of uh, the economy, and I really want to talk for just a moment about Putin. Uh, I I don't think, and as you know as we speak, and this show is being recorded on the 9th of April, so um, changes in in, in Ukraine are happening moment by moment. I don't think Putin has any idea of what he has done with Crimea. Uh, Most of his senior economic advisors that the West would believe are credible have fled Russia or have been hiding in, in deep underground so they won't get picked off. Uh, yeah. with that paucity of talent to advise him, he doesn't realize the enormous consequences of what he has done. Let me make a prediction. Within two years, Germany will have so dramatically reduced its demand for Russian gas that right now, if you know if the Russians cut off the gas to Germany, the Germans would be in deep yogurt for at least a year, and Russians would be in deep yogurt because they've got to sell that stuff or they can't maintain their dictatorship. Uh, we, which is what Putin is. He's a modern-day dictator. Um, my guess is that the Germans, within two years, will have created enough energy independence that they'll be able to turn on Putin and say, you know what, we're not going to buy as much. And when that starts to happen, Putin's economy is going to shrink. And as we all know by reading Russian history, when the peasants aren't paid, in the case of the uh, Russian economy today, it's called the pensioners, what happens is they do revolt. And my guess is that Putin is sitting, riding the back of a tiger, not realizing that the way he's isolating himself from the global economy is going to cause untold economic damage to Russia, probably create some damage in Europe, probably have very little damage to the U.S., frankly, and, and I think um, is only going to further shore up China's position in the world. So I don't think Russia gets that. Putin just doesn't seem to know that kind of stuff, because he's a strong man, and he has isolated himself from good economic advice so uh, if there's a um, any questions about that our readers would like to a- our listeners would like to ask in the future i would more than happy uh, to um, um, to go into it in a future show because i'm fascinated by what's going on in crimea and i'm fascinated by uh, what's
2: happening with uh, putin uh, yeah. is that a good enough
0: wrap up matt
2: well the one thing i wanted to add you know the the issue in russia is extremely important and i would like to get into that more uh, as it develops, one one more piece, though, that I want to come back to is uh, the action on unemployment benefits that, you know, we saw the Senate pass a bill um, and to to make up for the uh, and extend the emergency unemployment benefits for people who are out of work uh, past the deadline. That that extension has not happened yet as a result of the Republican House leadership uh, stopping the bill and not bringing it to a vote. I think that that's another uh x factor that could be stimulative to the economy and could be very influential in the uh upcoming elections, so that's one thing i want to keep on everyone's radar
0: yeah I think that's good and i think um another thing we have to keep on everyone's radar is the, the on are the ongoing implications of the reduction of the u s demand for foreign oil uh there's a law in this in this country that says that you can't take domestically produced oil and gas and ship it offshore, which is kind of an interesting law because that will tend to, get, to begin, continue reducing our energy prices here in the United States, which is a huge opportunity for us vis-a-vis competitiveness. On the other hand, uh, people need to understand that's why the XL pipeline is being sought so aggressively by the oil companies. You see, 100% of the Exxon pipe, XL pipeline, 100% of that oil, that goes to refineries on the Gulf Coast at great risk to us by flowing over the United States 100% of that oil is going offshore so none of that oil is coming to America so why are we taking all that oil from Canada at an enormous environmental cost piping this deeply sludge type oil mixture down to the refineries on the Gulf Coast to enrich the refineries and to keep them busier making stuff for China because 100% of that oil has got to go to China When if, in fact, we didn't send all that oil down, we would be seeing refineries needing to produce gas at a cheaper price in order to move more of it, because there would be less refinery capacity. So we're really shooting ourselves in the foot for the financial benefit of just a few refineries owned by major oil companies. Last point I want to make on the XL pipeline, because that decision hopefully is coming out soon. That pipeline, when it goes to the Gulf Coast, and it creates all that wealth for for a handful of companies, is actually defeating our longer-term objectives of international competitiveness. So our lower cost of fuels is actually a huge competitive advantage. And what I think people need to focus on is why that XL pipeline is so stupid for Americans, makes absolutely no economic sense, makes no energy sense, and all it does is keeps us from facing the real issue, which is why are we going to zero carbon, zero nuclear? It's available. We can do it. Techniclo- technologically, it's available. Financially, it's available. I don't understand why people are getting distracted, and I hope our listeners are getting the information they need to talk to their friends and neighbors so that you can penetrate this fog of misinformation. And in case anyone says to you, well, it's safer than putting in a train, So I guess the pipeline's a better alternative. Please be advised, the Canadian government has already said point blank in writing they will not expand the tar sands if it means using trains. They don't think they can do it safely. So, in fact, if they don't get the XL pipeline, that will slow down the the growth of the tar sands, which is one of the most polluting forms of oil uh, creation, meaning extraction, on the face of the planet, and something that we all ought to be resisting particularly now that you know you make no economic benefit as American citizens, you get no additional energy as American citizens, and all you're doing is
2: enriching a few oil companies at great expense and risk to the American public. That's right. And uh, one note for our listeners, the Academy recently published uh, a a vision statement for something called the California Moonshot Project. Uh, The vision is 100% renewable energy for the entire state of California within 10 years. Uh, we're throwing our weight behind this and rallying around it. Um, and we would like anyone who's interested to go to our website at worldbusiness.org, where on the right side of the page you'll see a uh, menu that says the California Moonshot Project. You can click on that and go to the landing page. Um, read the document, check it out, and please send us your thoughts at info at worldbusiness.org, where we're available By the way, to uh, yeah. take your feedback. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Ronaldo.
0: No, I just just want to add one thing to what you said, Matt, because I want to make it clear to people. The California Moonshot proposal is, as Matt said, to eliminate all carbon-based fuels, that includes fracked natural gas, and all nuclear at no additional cost to the rate That's a sentence you left off. At no additional cost, meaning the people of the state of California will not pay anything extra to go clean green. Now... I've got to ask every listener, and I've done this three or four times in major places. I just did it with 1,400-plus people at the Arlington Theater. And I said, if you could create 100% green energy, nuclear-free, car- fossil fuel-free, you could do it in 10 years or less, and you could do it at no additional cost of repairs, by a show of hands, how many of you would like us to do that? And every hand in the joint goes up, because it's a no-brainer. Of course we'd want to do that. Now, what, what, what people need to understand is now that the World Business Academy is tackling this issue, We've supplied, already have begun supplying and will continue to supply to the state of California at the Public Utilities Commission level, the information they have requested from us about how to do that technically and how to do that financially. And I have met now with individual commissioners, the president of the commission, and their staffs, the staff of the commission itself, and every single one of them is delighted when I lay out for them in detail how this works technically and economically. And I would like everybody listening, no matter what state or country you're in, to request the same thing of your leadership, of your political leadership. So I, Matt commented about how Congress has not extended the benefit laws, unemployment benefits, which I think is criminal, by the way, and why the Republican Congress, and I'm only picking on them because it's the Republicans doing it. Uh, I'd like to be able to pick on Democrats for something else, but on this one it's clearly the Republicans. And if they're doing that kind of silliness, and they're, but they've got time to try and put in an XL pipeline, and they don't have time, to help the unemployed long-term unemployed, it tells me that the Congress is intentionally trying to hobble the economy so they could weaken the economy in the hopes of taking the presidency in 2016 and, and winning in the midterm elections. I think that's so craven, and I think that's so discouraging, that I want our listeners to know there is a way for you to participate. Go to our website. By the way, first of all, tell people about the show. Get everybody talking about the information on the show ask questions send them in ahead of time so we'll deal with them on the air go to our info at worldbusiness.org and look for how you can understand the california moonshot which is the first time in the history of the united states or the world that a major economy has been willing to switch completely off of fossil fuels and completely off of nuclear and do it at no cost to the average joe so that's that's big news share it with your friends sending questions if you have them go to the website and get informed and then push your political leadership to get to the world you want not the world you don't particularly care for
2: so I think- Ronaldo with that that inspiring message I think that's very important and, and again the website there is worldbusiness.org um I'm ready to in- introduce Deb if you are Ronaldo I'd love to I I love okay, Deb great. so I'd love to get her on the air well Deb Nelson is the executive director of Social Venture Network, which is an organization of 600 business leaders, impact investors, and social entrepreneurs who are leveraging the power of business to solve social and environmental problems. Uh, Prior to SVN, Deb worked for Working Assets and American Express and served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Cameroon. She has a BA in English from Northwestern University and an MBA MBA in Marketing and Management Strategy from the Kellogg Graduate School of Management. Deb, uh, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, Matt. Good to be here.
2: Deb, you know, I'm going to disclose, uh,
0: I I have a potential conflict of interest. Not only do I love Deb Nelson, so that's one conflict, but the other conflict of interest is I belong to Social Venture Network and have since inception, so I'm a longtime fan of not only what Deb is doing as an individual, but I'm a big fan of what the organization has done for the last 26 years. And um, her appearing on this show is consistent with the the number of times we've spoken on the show about how much we like Bill McKibben how much we uh, like 350.org, and how important we think it is to divest of oil company stocks and invest in the green economy. But I wanted to ask you, Dev, because I was delighted to hear that you were so excited about it, and I wanted to ask why. Why are you so excited?
3: I'd be happy to, and and just want to say we've been thrilled to have you as a member of SVN since the founding of our organization. So uh, thanks for having me on your show. Um, When I first learned about Divest Invest, uh, it was one of the most important initiatives I've ever heard of um, in terms of leveraging the power of business and business leaders to solve social, environmental, and economic problems. Um, it's one of those movements that's good for people on the planet, uh, so it's an e- important ethical choice, but it's also a very smart business decision, which is what we're all about at Social Venture Network.
0: Okay, and and, and just on that subject, um, I think people understand the morality of divest, which is what we did with apartheid under the prior regime in South Africa to help bring that regime to an end so that uh, people like Nelson Mandela could emerge. And it was done by a divest movement, initially by students on college campuses, impressing upon the, um, the, the administrators of the various trusts that, uh, and, and regents groups so that they wouldn't invest in, in Union in South Africa stocks. This divest is, of all carbon-based stocks if i'm understanding correctly that
3: right uh, all fossil fuel stocks and bonds
0: yeah and and is it your hope that that would also trigger some change in the industry uh, the way apartheid was changed by the device movement before or what's your hope
3: My hope is that this movement can actually transform our economy and help move us to a a low-carbon economy. And so the Divest Invest movement, is really focused on divesting from fossil fuels and investing in climate solutions, renewable energy, low-carbon technology, energy efficiency. And so it's about starting with institutional investors, so getting large endowments out of fossil fuels, getting them to – invest in low-carbon technology, renewable energy. And um, and eventually, you know, this, this movement is going to expand to investors of all shapes, all portfolio sizes, and it will expand to all consumer citizens because everyone can divest from companies that do harm and invest in companies that do good.
0: Well, and I, and I want to just touch on that. I mean, what we've said on this show before, and we're really – strong on this point it doesn't make economic sense anymore to hold uh, fossil fuel stocks and the reason is mm-hmm. all of the potential benefits of fossil fuels have already been built into those stock prices the the risk to me of st- fossil fuel stocks coming down over the next 12 to 60 months which is one to five years and and nobody is Listen to the show, I've always said over and over, do not be a day trader. You you can't possibly win. And and the new book by Michael Lewis proves that conclusively. Uh, But but, but apart from the, the fact that in the next year to three years, so if you're looking at your own portfolio, your own 401K, your own IRA, or frankly anybody that you know who's involved in making investment decisions and your own personal savings, having a stock in a group which has as much or more downside risk, which the fossil fuel stocks do now, as upside opportunity, is a cautionary tale no matter what your morality is, no matter whether or not you believe in the green economy. I believe that the vest movement is smart economics, and that's why it will spread even to people who might prefer fossil fuels, but at the end of the day want to make a better rate of return, and I don't think that's going to be with fossil fuels.
3: That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And and a quick explanation is that two-thirds of fossil fuel reserves are what they call stranded assets, meaning they'll lose their economic value well before they can be used. The International Energy Agency calculated a carbon budget that limits the amount of fossil fuels we can burn if we want to avoid causing permanent irreversible damage to our environment, which I I believe most people agree would be wise to avoid. So in in order to stay within this carbon limit, we can only burn one-third of fossil fuel reserves, which means two-thirds are virtually worthless stranded assets. And um, Al Gore and David Blood wrote a great essay about this in the Wall Street Journal last fall, warning investors that fossil fuel investments are destined to lose their economic value and telling them that they need to adjust their investment portfolios now.
0: Yeah, I absolutely could agree more. I didn't realize that they'd written that last... Note. I, if you would send us a link to that, we'll put it up on our website, Deb, as well as Matt... That's
3: great piece.
0: Yeah, as well, Matt, we should put up a link to Matt Taibbi's piece in Rolling Stone, which basically was the basis, I think, of what the Gore article was about. And is as, as far as I can tell, accurate... And, and what, what Deb just disca- described is... Um, in stranded assets is a polite word we use in the utility field... Uh, what this really is is water on their balance sheet instead of oil. <laughs> I mean, literally, they, mm-hmm. the balance sheets yeah. are phony because they're, yeah. they're, they're crediting reserves that can never, ever be burned. And, and that condition isn't just because we want to have a green or livable planet. It's because we won't have the option if we even begin to burn close to what they've got because we won't be here to
2: complain. It would be non-survivable okay. for human civilization as we know it. Can I no, zoom out and ask a, I, I want to ask a question about that, because it, 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 this seems to be a crucial factor. If, inve- if the investment community uh, continues to wake up to the fact that, as you say, so many of these uh, oil company assets and coal company assets are not it, worth what they're saying they are, what, what does that look like in terms of a bubble popping? Is, is, what, what's the potential for the international economy? And oh, I, I, I want to ask uh, Deb that and Ronaldo. Good.
3: Sure. Um, well, well, this is something that people are discussing all over the world um, at the World Economic Forum in Davos. You know, there was a, a very large discussion about the growing economic threat that's posed by overvaluing fossil stocks. Um, and champions of divest invest are growing every day. You know, they're now on over 500 college campuses around the world. Dozens of major institutional investors are stepping up and committing to divest, invest. Um, Ellen Dorsey from the Wallace Global Fund has been an early champion of this movement, and she's been working with nearly 20 foundations who have committed to divest, invest, and partners like 350.org, Sierra Club, Sustainable Endowments Institute, Responsible Endowments Coalition. Um, And what investors are finding is that there are so many great opportunities in climate solutions. So in virtually every sector, renewable energy, transportation, agriculture, housing, buildings, water, renewable technologies are already competitive with fossil fuels in a number of countries without subsidies that will only grow and low-carbon technologies are exploding. So it's a great time to invest in climate solutions.
0: Absolutely. And I, I just want to um, echo that and, and confirm the same thing. I believe that um, the implications for the global economy of the readjustment which will happen in the next 12 to 60 months in the valuation of of, um, fossil fuel stocks will cause a massive international uh, problem economically. And that massive problem is going to cause a readjustment. And as it does, what people are going to find is we've tripped over a very explosive um, landmine. If we know that going into it, we'd want to diffuse that landmine in advance. And the way to diffuse that landmine is for small groups of people already to begin divesting so that as, they, as it builds, it lets, if you, I'm going to mix metaphors, it lets some of the air out of the balloon that's going to pop. Because you have so much integration of fossil fuel stocks in virtually every pension fund, in virtually every major account, that you have to now pull, start pulling that out because you don't want it to pull the whole, the, the, the whole international economic structure down. So I would urge people not only for their own economic best interest to get out of fossil fuel stocks now, but for the best interest of the planet's economic system because the more air we get let out of the balloon before it pops – the less damage the pop will be. And the way it is today, if we were to pop today, it would take the entire global economy down with it. You'd be in a depression.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, And, Deb, on that point, how do you see or do you see uh, the reaction in circles, maybe not publicly, of the foundations that have begun this divestment movement uh, to just this question, which is essentially, you know, not only does it make economic sense to divest, uh, but it's also the the right thing to do morally. Is, is that a, a change in the attitude of these uh, foundations and other business organizations that you're uh, in touch with?
3: Yes, they're definitely seeing it as an opportunity to align their values with their financial investments. And they're also seeing it as an opportunity to be part of a larger intergenerational movement um, that can address one of the most daunting challenges of our time, which is climate change. Um, One of the beautiful aspects of this movement is that it is truly intergenerational. It it actually started with college climate activists. It started in the summer of 2011 where college activists came together in Washington. They created campus campaigns calling on their universities to divest from coal. It later broadened to divesting from all fossil fuels and then, then later included a call for clean energy investment And it was Bill McKibben um, who really helped this movement explode when he ran his widely publicized article in Rolling Stone magazine talking about uh, the carbon bubble that was reported by Carbon Tracker Initiative. And so, you know, they all joined forces, young climate activists, pioneering investors, foundations. The movement took off and now... In addition to institutional investors, large ones, um, there are investors of all sizes, also churches, universities, hospitals, pension funds, and cities. People see this as a very smart business decision, um, but such an opportunity to align their values with their action and to really leverage their money in ways that are really good for people in the planet over the long term.
0: And just on that subject, uh, Deb, uh, I read recently that some group of philanthropists made an announcement that they were going to divest. Do you know which one I'm referring to?
3: Yeah, it was, it was a New a, York a Times article. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it was a New York Times article, and it featured Ellen Dorsey from the Wobble, Wallace Global Fund. Um, right. And it was a coalition of, of 17 foundations that had committed to divest invest and you know and they're letting people divest invest over time they don't have to do it tomorrow they can divest you know over a period of 5 years and they're also committing to invest at least of their portfolio in climate solutions, things like renewable energy efficiency, low carbon technology. Um, And and again, it's growing every day. Ellen has, you know, dozens of foundations that are interested in making the commitment and, you know, I expect them to come on board within the next couple of months. It's a very exciting time. uh, It's just a smart, ethical thing to do.
0: Yeah, and for, from your point of view, Ellen, uh, De- 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 I know that you're doing this because you're you're personally really committed. Is this something that SVN is really taking on? Are you are you getting the support from the rest of the members who really want to see this initiative go through?
3: We are, we are. And Ellen Dorsey is one of our members. Um, Tom Van Dyke from RBC Wealth Management, right. He's definitely one of the early champions of this movement. And um, what we're finding is that the impact investors and business leaders in our network. Um, they really want to galvanize other business leaders and investors of all kinds to support Divest Invest because they see this as such a powerful systemic change initiative. And, And regardless of, you know, where you lie on the political spectrum, this just makes sense. You know, if we care about the future, you know, for the children of our children's children, this is, this is the right thing to do. So, so what we're doing as Social Venture Network is we're, we're galvanizing the business community and the impact investor community to support this, and we're also uh, leveraging our Bridge Initiative, which is an intergenerational initiative to connect early pioneers of mission-driven business with the new pioneers. Um, we're helping to spread the word about this movement and helping to get more people to understand it and sign on, um, because anyone can get involved. You know, and, and you know, if any of your listeners are investors of any size, you know, they can talk to um, their investment advisors, divest from fossil fuels, invest in climate solutions. Um, they can also call in their universities to divest and invest, and uh, if they serve on foundation boards, they can do the same. So there's a, a lot that any consumer citizen can do to support this initiative.
0: And, and by the way, I just uh, been thinking as we were talking here, the there, there was a tipping point when enough institutions started divesting in South Africa that it actually the handwriting was on the wall, and the government of Pretoria knew it. I'm wondering if I haven't seen anybody do any kind of a study or a story on what what kind of a tipping point are we looking at i mean how many people have to get smart and get committed before this kind of develops a momentum of its own do you think Give it sense
3: yeah it's it, you know the the movement is definitely growing rapidly i i would say we're about 6 to 12 months away from from a significant tipping point um and i think that that's encouraging the,
0: that's really encouraging yeah, yeah
3: yeah i i really do because i i think you know, the, the more people read about this, it's not, it's not that complex. It's not that difficult to understand that this is really a, a very brilliant solution. Um, and the more, we, you know, that we have well-known government business leaders, investors, um, young leaders speaking out, the more this will spread in the general public and, uh, and there will be, you know, social movements that that turned the divest movement into something that was as successful as the uh, anti-apartheid divest movement was.
0: Do you think Bill McKibben is going to go do his college tour again? I thought that was very successful. I sure hope so.
3: I, I think you yeah, should I call do. him up and make that happen.
0: <laughs> let's call them together, Deb. <laughs>
3: sounds great. Let,
0: let's call him on behalf of the Alliance. How about that? <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah. Well, I think that the, um, the, the, the the biggest question from my point of view at this point is um, – and we've said on this show for many, many – well, forever, actually. It's three years we've been on the air, three-plus years, that we don't invest – I personally have never invested in fossil fuel stocks for moral reasons. And I always give people my assessment, however, of what's going to happen to the price of oil, et cetera, is so they can make their own choices. But under the circumstances that we now have this divest movement, we started recommending last year that our listeners, even if they think they like the oil stocks, to get out. The risk of owning them now is much greater than the upside potential. And I hope that for their own individual economic motives, our listeners will see it's in their best interest to get out of those stocks. Now, if you talk to your local broker at at Merrill Lynch or, Charles Schwab, if you have a broker, uh, they will tend to downplay this. Uh, they'll tend to say, listen, this is a, this is a trend that's not going to happen for decades, if at all. And they'll say all kinds of silly things. The truth is the oil companies in America radically missed how fast the average fuel consumption of an American car would drop. When we did our book eight years ago, Freedom from East Oil, our number one recommendation was change the CAFE fuel standards and watch what it does to imported oil. And in fact, the change in CAFE fuel standards, which the President did adopt two years ago, is having such a dramatic effect, we virtually have no imported foreign oil anymore. Uh, and, 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 and that average fuel economy, by the way, continues to accelerate. So I think what you're looking at, folks, is not only a sea change in a realistic view that there isn't as much oil available as an asset to ExxonMobil or to BP as they are claiming on their balance sheet. And you, if you don't know this, the value of an oil company stock is the amount of its reserves projected at the selling price. So that's how you value an oil company stock. And based on that calculation, the, the six major oil company stocks have probably 30 to 40% of water rather than oil on their balance sheet. So just think of how little of that has to become aware to people before their stocks start dropping. It's that big a cliff that they could fall off of. And I'm just delighted that Deb Nelson is taking such an active interest in it. Deb, before we wrap, do you have any final thoughts you want to share with us?
3: Oh, just a couple. Um, just to build on what you were just saying, conservative estimates for the financial worth of unburnable carbon reserves, they've ranged from $20 trillion to $27 trillion. So if there's any financial advisor that's going to say, oh, this carbon bubble is nonsense, it's not nonsense. It's very real. Um, It's happening right now. It's uh, it's very similar to the dot-com bubble and real estate
0: bubble. It really is. Um, Where where could they get access to that? Where where, where would you send people who want to know more? Little small people, not people with giant pension funds, but just common folks like you and me. Where would they go?
3: Right. Well, there's a wonderful report which I can share with you and you can post on your site. It was from the TELUS Institute, and it's Institutional Pathways to Fossil-Free Investing, and it talks about the top 200 fossil fuel companies and the easiest ways to divest from them. So lo- lots of great tools out there. I will send them to you, and you can post them on your site.
0: Yeah, and you know, that just, you just gave me an idea. Um, is there any kind of consortium of nonprofit groups like yours and ours that maintain, and we're willing to do it, an ongoing blog posting of key articles and summaries of key articles uh, on this whole divest-invest movement. I know that 3050.org does it because that's their whole enchilada, But are, are, and I'm willing to do it for the Academy. Are there others that are doing that, keeping the public informed on a regular basis, updating?
3: Yes. I mean, some of the key partners are 350.org, Responsible Endowments Coalition, Sustainable Endowments Institute, TELUS Institute, Wallace Global Fund. Um, But we can make it easy for your listeners by, if they're already going to your site, we can send them some of the best reports there. Yeah.
0: And, and, and Deb, don't even wait for an invitation. It's always open door. If you come up with anything that you think our listeners should be reading, send it to us. We'll stick it up on our web. We'll possibly even comment on it in another show. Love to have you back at some point, and let's talk about this some more and see where it is six months uh, down the road from where we are today, and hopefully it'll pick up even more momentum by then.
3: I know I'll have good news to share. Thank you for having me on your show. Thanks so much. Great great to be with you. Thank you, Ronaldo and Matt.
2: Well, that was an encouraging interview, Ronaldo. Thank you.
0: You know, I just, first of all, people like Deb... If you don't know it, folks, people like Deb are very serious players. Her sweet tone and her calm demeanor should not confuse you. Uh, Deb Nelson uh, is steel at her core. And when people like Deb Nelson make up their mind that they are going to change something, you cannot dismiss that lightly. And I just want to make this one comment further with Deb's now off the phone, and that is when when people like Deb and the other group she mentioned focus on how important it is to penetrate this oil bubble, the very fact they are focusing on it will cause oil stocks to drop. Yeah. So it, the handwriting is on the wall, folks. So even if you thought you really needed to open, own a piece of BP uh, or Ec- ExxonMobil for your future, that is not your future. That is your past. I wouldn't recommend anybody invest in the stock of whale oil companies i wouldn 't hmm. recommend that they invest in buggy whip manufacturers i wouldn 't recommend that they invest in people who make stone cartwheels that 's yesterday 's news that's that 's the sunset we 've come through. The sunrise, the invest part of divest invest are the fuel cell manufacturers, the electrolyzer manufacturers, the windmill manufacturers, the photovoltaic manufacturers, the OTEC or ocean thermal energy conversion suppliers. All of these companies are the are are the are the new Exxon Mobiles except they have one thing in common that is they're green. That's where we yeah, do, and we hope to go.
2: And in addition, you know, we there's so there's many of them um, and we're looking at, you know, by its nature, re- renewable energy is much more uh, distributed as opposed to centralized. Uh, because it comes from the sun and the wind, it's available all over the place, not just a few uh, small regions that happen to have oil deposits under their uh, mountains or their or their sand. And it's, a, it's much more accessible. Um, anyone can become a, an electricity generator by putting a solar panel on their roof. So we're looking at a new paradigm. Um, I think that one thing that's important for... For me to understand that, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about Ronaldo, is, why do investment managers consider these oil stocks a, a safe investment? Why is there so much money in oil right now? Oh, I can tell you. it's very easy. Um, it, it, investment managers look for very large
0: cap stocks with predictable returns as a core holding in their portfolio. So they don't look at ExxonMobil or BP as the breakout stock, like owning a piece of Tesla. They look at it as a core holding so that if they're wrong about Tesla, it won't affect the total portfolio performance. And the market capitalization, meaning the total value of the stock's outstanding of the six major oil companies times what they get for their each share in the marketplace, dwarfs every other aspect of the economy. There's nothing hmm. that holds that kind of massive power so if you're if you're a conservative investment advisor you're going to say you know what you can't not be in the oil company stocks because they're ubiquitous they're everywhere and right. they're the largest of the large caps and they've had the most consistent long-term performance for a hundred years so you say, gee, if you're looking backwards seems like a good idea and and i always say to people you know you can drive down a freeway at a hundred miles an hour literally And do it strictly by looking at your rearview mirror if the windshield on your car is blacked out. The problem is the first corner you come to, the first bend in the road, you're dead because you can't see that bend by looking backwards. That's what divest invest is. It's this big bend in the road. And if you you believe that the best way to protect people's money is by looking in your rearview mirror, you're going to have a car accident. It's going to be called a financial wreck. And we had one. Right? We right. came We've out seen of this
2: before. Exactly. We've
0: seen this show. We've been to this rodeo, and we don't want to go back. So if, you, if other people are going to be dumb enough to listen to this uncritically, and I mean that, if you're not going to be smart enough to get out of oil stocks, you're going to deserve what happens to you. And it is going to happen. Now, I hope Deb's right. We'll see it within a year. I thought that was a very optimistic conclusion. I think that there's no question I'm right. It's within one to five. But, you know, uh, you can't try to time the market so you're going to pot- pick at the exact right moment to sell oil stocks where they've gone exactly to the peak, and tomorrow morning they're going to drop. If you do that, you're always going to lose. You can't time the top of a market, and you can't time the bottom of a market. What you can do is see when the bottom is coming, and you can see when the top is generally coming. The top is generally here for oil company stocks on a variety of conventional indices. So the only question is, if they're not going to be able to pump all that oil, and their stock price therefore goes down, what will they do? And I can tell you what they'll do right now, Matt. They will start increasing their dividends so that you'll continue to hold the stock for the dividend. And that's how they're going to, keep, that's how they're going to avoid having a depression, a great crash. They're going to pump the dividends way up because they're making so much money. and They've got tons of room to go with dividends. And that will only work for a couple of years because everybody who takes advantage of those dividends will be watching where those dividends are coming from. And they'll go, ooh, Works for a while, but it doesn't work forever.
2: So, and that's so because, I think you're going to see Because consumers, consumers would adjust to the higher prices and start looking for alternative fuels to power their lives and their their uh, electricity grids. Well, it's a precise. It's a double whammy.
0: It's it's it, it, it's they won't be able to sell as much, which means that the amount of money they generate will be going down. And the only reason they stay in business now is because they have such egregious profits. I'll come back to that word in a moment that they can afford platoons, armies of lawyers, armies of lobbyists in every state capital in America, in the federal government. I mean, the oil companies have been running America for years. Now, you can only maintain that system if you can keep pumping enormous amounts of cash into it. So, so what do I call an egregious profit? I call a profit egregious when, like ExxonMobil, you can overpay your executives in an embarrassingly high fashion, you can afford fleets of private jets, You can afford armies of lobbyists, armies of lawyers, avoid your taxes, and still generate massive profits at the bottom line. Now, that's what they're doing. And those distorted profits, which you can never get in a free economic system. In other words, the capital market system is failing us because it is being rigged, not because it's a bad idea. And when you have enough power in the capital market system, you can rig the political system to keep yourself in power to a point. What divest invest is about is that we're rapidly approaching that point. And when people realize that the risk of holding an oil stock is greater than the, than the, the, the downside benefit of re, of selling it, you'll see a, a, a dramatic change in the way coal, oil stocks are evaluated. That will begin to reduce their economic power. That will begin to reduce their political power. That will begin to reduce their, the money that flows through their, their coffers. And sooner or later, you will see that change. I want to make one comment. Just like they did not see, the oil companies for all their money did not see, the fact that they would be uh, dramatically selling less gasoline because the average distance traveled by car on a mile of gas has gone up on a, gas, a gallon of gas. They also did not see the Prius coming, the hybrids. They don't have any idea what's about to hit them with fuel cells. The Hyundai is going to be here in another month in California. They have no idea what's going to happen to them when more states begin to stop fracking because we don't have enough water to frack, frankly. We, it, it's clearly forming incredible pools of toxic cancer-causing materials under the ground. Clearly, It is a negative on the environment. Clearly, it is creating earthquakes. So with all this stuff against fracking, do you think fracking is going to go on forever? Or is a place like New York that put it on hold, or a place like uh, New Hampshire that stopped it entirely, the the bellwether, that's where the country's going. I regret that California hasn't gotten there yet. I'll bet they'll be there by next year. So a time of decreasing supply, a time of decreasing demand, and a time of politically readjusting their influence is all going to bring the oil companies with the divest-invest the divest, movement, I believe, to a different situation than they've been in all these years. And eventually, the smart money in pensions will say, wow, we really can't afford that risk. We're going to have to sell this stuff as quick as we can get rid of it.
2: Well, it's very interesting, and uh, we'll keep following it closely. Um, speaking, Staying on energy here for a minute, Ronaldo, and uh, major victories uh, that have actually that are occurring right now, I'd like to talk a little bit about the victory at the San Onofre nuclear power plant that the Academy has been deeply involved with. Do you want to set that up? Yeah, sure. So
0: everybody knows we've um, we're the only business group in America that fought uh, closing and fought to close the San Onofre. Some call it, it's referred to as Songs, the San Onofre nuclear generating station. Songs. Uh, so we fought to close it, and it closed last June. And then when it did, all our allies, particularly people like Friends of the Earth and others, with whom we are really indebted for their their vigorous pursuit of that closing. Uh, the, most the in fact, almost all the environmental groups left the field and really didn't focus on what about all the money we were charged that we paid for energy we didn't get and that they are going to charge us in the future for broke, a broken plant we didn't break that they broke, Edison broke. And um, so that there were, a decision came down January 13th of this year. They were going to give us $94 million worth of rebates to the California ratepayers. The academy vigorously objected to that. The commission, in an extraordinary measure, uh, decided not to adopt the final hearing decision of the administrative law judge, and basically told Edison to settle. Uh, we met with Edison privately. I know other parties have met with them, and the result is that, and we said we wanted 1.5 billion. 94 million was not fair, not right, wasn't just. We felt the case could be made for even more than $1.5 billion, but we were willing to see a $1.5 billion settlement. Uh, if it would end this whole thing, and we could go on to the next issue, which is how do we replace all this fossil fuel stuff with, with green energy. Well, I'm very pleased to report that about 10 days ago, a settlement was entered into and has been promulgated by the commission, and the settlement, instead of $94 million, is for $1.4 billion dollars. And I, for one, am very pleased that we hung out for 1500000000 billion. I'm more than pleased with the $1.4 billion that we got. And I'm certainly hopeful that um, this is the beginning of a new day for Edison, where they'll start to act like public servants rather than um, public predators, frankly. Yeah. So hopefully Edison will change its stripes. I'm I'm not wildly enthusiastic that's going to happen, but I'm hoping it'll happen and I'd like to see them part of the energy future for California, not the energy past.
2: But um yeah.
0: what, what else would you like? Let's just anything else about San Onofre we can share with people?
2: Yeah, I think the important part there is that uh, this nuclear power plant in San Diego was closed and the utility company was trying to get away with charging ratepayers to clean it up. Uh the the California Public Utilities Commission came to life at our urging and the urging of many of our social uh, our environmental justice allies in that fight to essentially hold their feet to the fire and it's been a long time coming we're very happy to see it and the bottom line is if this signals a new future for the regulators in California we have a real shot at accomplishing our goals of helping to replace the entire fuel system of California with 100% renewable energy, and I, I, I'm very excited about this and enthusiastic, Ronaldo. Yeah, so am
0: I. And, and I should share one thing though with people because I don't want to have any confusion. The Academy did that for free, basically. In other words, we don't—we're not a contingency law firm. We don't—we didn't get a piece of 1.4 billion. Every penny is going back to the ratepayers of Southern California. Just so you know, yeah. folks, we, we we did that for love, not money. Uh, we will be entitled to petition that the commission reimburse us our out-of-pocket expenses, which I'd like to get reimbursed, frankly. Uh, but uh, that's at the, the commission's discretion. It's, it's not guaranteed. So uh, please, um, if, for those of you who are happy that you're going to be paying in Southern California particularly, uh, you're going to be getting refunds for the next 10 years, literally, from medicine, uh, and also from San Diego Gas and Electric. If you folks um, would support the Academy, I think we can do a lot more to keep your energy bills lower and to give you green energy, and to turn around the state of California, which to me is the the bellwether state in the country, and therefore the first place in the world where we have to take a stand, no more carbon fuels, no more fossil fuels, no more nuclear, period. Nothing to say about it, and we don't want to pay a premium for getting the good stuff because we know we can get it for the same price as the dirty stuff.
2: Excellent. Well, on that note, Ronaldo, I'd like to turn to the lightning round now, Um, and in the lightning round, we give our outlook on various asset classes to help our listeners protect their investments and know essentially which direction we see a lot of these uh, trends going. So, Ronaldo, would you like to start with stocks? Sure. Um, actually, let me start with, with Janet, Ye-
0: uh, Janet Yellen first, and then I'll okay. go to stocks. Um, right. So Yellen appeared before Congress uh, in her first official capacity as the new director of the Fed. Uh, by the way, we were this show is a f- uh, big fan of, of Yellen's. Uh, We were actively saying she should be appointed as head of the Fed. We're really glad she was, uh, and we think she's going to do a great job. When she testified before Congress, um, there was a sense that the marketplace developed, the capital markets, that she might um, too quickly abandon uh, her commitment to keep rates low as a way to keep inflation damped down. Uh, very low rates, like we've been having for the last few years, are basically negative interest rates. It pays to borrow, believe it or not. So, uh, when she testified, it was, and uh, she said, "Well, you know, we can see rates coming up because the economy is picking up, as I've reported in the show today, and I keep reporting since last November. I kept saying, you know, we're, we're going to see an uptick, and it's going to be a pretty good one." Um, so, so that got confusing, and the marketplace took a dive right after she testified. So, she clarified in a private meeting just a week ago. What she meant by that, and the market really embraced their clarification. What she's saying is, there will be slow, creeping inflation. You can count on it, folks. That's what real wage growth means. A little bit of inflation, in from as if it's real wage growth, is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing both for the economy and for the individual who gets the real wage growth, meaning they get more wages than the, than the rise in inflation. However, it tends then to build some inflationary pressure into the economy, which isn't good. In other words, a little bit of inflation is okay, a lot of inflation isn't. So what she was saying in her, in her, in her um, subsequent remarks is, we understand the need to keep funneling money into the economy to keep it going. So w- we understand why business wants negative income, negative interest rates. However... We recognize that there will be some inflation challenges, particularly in the second half of this year, which is what this show has been saying for all along. And because of that, we want you to know, marketplace, that we're monitoring both inflation levels and economic recovery. And we will err on the te- we'll err on the side of not being so strict in our attempt to damp down inflation that we cause the economy to go back into. A negative growth environment so it's clear to me she's a friend of the working person she's trying to get real wage growth up she's trying to keep inflation under control and in doing all of that I think she's doing this great service to the country as the head of the Fed and therefore she's creating what I will now say is the opportunity for stocks to continue to grow why well with what she's clarified a little bit of inflation actually is good for the stock market not only that, she's saying, I'm not going to crater the business community, the, the, the economy, just because I'm overly concerned about inflation. So therefore, I won't damp down prematurely, which is another reason why stocks will do well. So I, could, I continue to believe, as we've been recommending for many months now, that stocks are a good upside tick. I still think that's true. And um, I think selectively stocks, obviously not fossil fuel ones, uh, can be very advantageous. And um, we'll be talking more to our listeners about the possibility in the future of actually getting involved with the fund that the Academy is trying to help get set up so that our listeners will have a place to put money in the stock market, which is safe over time. But in the meantime, I continue to be concerned by long-term bonds. Uh, For example, if you buy a 10-year or longer U.S. Treasury, uh, uh, and a 30-year would be particularly difficult for you, I suspect that is a... um, Uh, which you'll get an interest you'll lose on face value. So I'm not going to recommend holding long-term U.S. Treasuries right now. And I think I started selling that about two shows ago, so I'm reinforcing. Don't like that. It's a little bit risky for me. Um, Rolling bond funds, not so bad because they're replaced every day, so they tend to keep up with modest inflation and don't get hurt on the face value that bad. And they can come up with higher income levels. Uh, so I think that the, 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 and the issue of some bonds, particularly state bonds, which are tax-exempt, uh, people listening to this program will know that we started recommending California uh, general obligation bonds, which are tax-exempt, oh uh, gosh, at least six, seven months, eight months ago, because we saw the risk of a California default falling away. Most states are now building up their financial position, and as a result... Um, with no risk of default or almost no risk of default, a California bond paying considerably more than a long-term federal treasury uh, is very attractive because it's going to pay you more current interest, and it uh, doesn't have that downside of a default. So I'm looking at some state bonds uh, as, as, a, as useful, but again, I'd want to have short maturities or I'd roll them frequently, and uh, stocks are still good. Uh, I think we should just touch a little bit on, I continue to like uh, residential, Uh, I think – and by the way, there's a new phenomenon happening in home home ownership now where people who used to sell their last house in order to buy the next one are trying to stretch to be able to hold their last house, rent it out, and still buy a new one. And that's happening because the rental market is so strong right now and probably will continue to get stronger. Uh, Multi-unit dwellings particularly, which means apartment buildings, condominiums, townhouses, will continue, I think, to appreciate in value. I think those markets which were the most depressed will, for the most part, continue to do well. I think that Phoenix is maybe growing a little too fast right now, and possibly Las Vegas should stay under pressure because they have serious water issues in both places, particularly bad in Las Vegas. But um, as a general rule across the country, real estate, meaning home ownership, will continue to appreciate as an asset. And if um, you're thinking of buying a home or a condominium or whatever, uh, dwelling, I think now is a good time. You can still get a very good rate, and the prices are still very affordable. Uh, over time, uh, the rates will get more expensive as inflation increases in the second half of this year, and maybe sooner, and uh, you will see um, challenges in terms of the prices continuing up. So at some point, the combination of good prices, which we still have, and good um, financing terms uh, will go away as a real estate broker said to me in a private conversation just a couple days ago this is one of those delightful markets which is good for both buyers and sellers and that doesn't happen all the time usually it's a buyer's market or a seller's market right now it's balanced it's good for buyers and it's good for sellers both um and i recommend if that's where you're looking not as a financial investment but because you need a place to live owning it might make more sense than renting it last but not least um want to talk about commercial real estate which we've been uh, saying for many months was going to continue to improve it has continued to improve Uh, particularly you're seeing now uh, office vacancies decrease so the amount of of office space available in various metropolitan areas because it's going down means it firms up the prices of those spaces so um, real estate investment trusts with a high degree of exposure in the uh, commercial market office market are probably going to do better um i think shopping centers are problematic frankly and the reason is although historically they have done well coming out of this recession uh shopping centers are now facing much more aggressive electronic uh, competition from the web and my sense is the normal bounce back that you would have seen by now in shopping centers on average um is not going to materialize so a little nervous about that uh some shopping centers uh, are extremely uh, valuable because they didn't even get hurt during the recession. And those are the ones that, of course, are doing even better in the post-recession, uh, meaning that they didn't lose traffic to electronic or otherwise uh, during the recession. And I'm thinking of one. I've got one in mind back on the East Coast that I'm very familiar with it, that basically never went below 99% occupancy, 98%, something like that. So it will; it's done well through the recession and will do even better in the future. But those are not accurate pictures on an aggregate, global, uh, U.S.-wide level. So I think that's basically the wrap today. Um, I'm pleased that foreign, um, several foreign currencies like the real in Brazil have begun firming up. I thought it was overly uh, depressed, and I think that's a positive thing. I believe the developing world generally is, uh, and if you've been following the newspapers, um, the developing world is now attracting much more capital. That's probably a good thing for all concerned. China is going to be spending a lot more on infrastructure uh, because its domestic economy has been cooling. That's definitely a good thing. So there's a lot of good economic news on the horizon, which altogether means why stocks are going to continue up and continue to show great gains, I think, or good gains, solid ones.
2: Excellent. On behalf of the World Business Academy, thank you for listening. We'll be back next month with another episode of New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Thanks, Ronaldo.
0: Thanks very much, Matt. Thanks to our listeners, and please tell your friends we –